What it do? And welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. Uh, Kyle Dow is actually someone who asked me one time a couple of years ago, what does it mean when I say what it do? And there's a part of me that every time that I say it, I actually think, what the fuck am I even saying? What is that mouth noise even conveying? And really just what it is, is it's me saying hi. I don't know if there's anything more to it than that. Uh, I could for sure psychoanalyze it and then project my insecurities and my woundings and my trauma onto myself, which I guess wouldn't be a projection. Oh God, what happens when you start projecting onto yourself? Is it actually illumination? I don't know. But uh, today's podcast is with Kyle Dow. Uh, This is someone who I met through the Fit for Service Mastermind. And uh, he was one of the most... There's an interesting thing that happens in groups where most people are wired in a way where they want to be the good boy or the good girl to make mommy or daddy happy. And then there's like one in 20 or one in 50 who they're not there to be a rebel, but they are absolutely there to ask why, why, why? And um, depending on the fragility of the leader, that can be seen as antagonistic or that can be seen as a vital part of making whatever it is that's being done better. And Kyle Dow has had that energy for me um, without it being malicious. He asks why. And I really respect that. And this podcast is a little bit different than the type of podcast that we've done in the past because he has recently become incredibly active in a activists movement in Canada. So we'll get into the details on the podcast and I want him to be able to share the story from his words. But apparently there is um, a conflict happening between the monolithic industrial slash consumerism slash profit slash eating the world machine, you know, that we call the economy, um, confronted with indigenous people who are trying to reserve um, a really ancient forest. And where the conflict is meeting is at a place called Fairy Creek. And the reason this podcast is so interesting to me is we live in a time where almost all of us are being confronted with information that if we truly believed that information, we would become activists. And there's a tension that I feel in me and I feel in everyone that I know who believes that they are seeing anything happening in the world that is quote unquote conspiratorial. Is that if you truly believed it, if you really believed it, you would be doing something. There's a quote by Emerson, and it's what you do speak so loudly that I cannot hear what you say. And that's my guiding um, principle whenever I start to navigate anything that is going on in the world that I feel is unjust, is if I really believed this, I would do something. And my daemon would haunt me if I really believed it and I didn't do something. 
And the interesting thing about Kyle is that he's fucking doing something. And so I really wanted to feel into the psyche of someone who had gotten to the point where they felt that they had enough understanding of what was happening in order to take an action. And I think that if you allow this podcast to be a microcosm that can elucidate a macrocosm, you can actually start to see, based off of what he shares, what you would need to see and to feel in order for you to begin to act. Because the truth is, anyone listening to this podcast right now, I know you see something in the world that you genuinely feel you understand well enough to claim that it is unjust. And you also probably aren't actually doing anything. You know, and that, that's a heavy thing to hold. But I think it's one of the calls of our time to cultivate the type of discernment that it would take to see injustice in the world and then to cultivate the courage to do something and then to cultivate the humility to reflect on what is being done. Is the action that I am taking the best action that I am capable of taking towards this end? Because ultimately, why do we do the work? I think we do the work to be of service. And Kyle Dow is an example. So I invite you guys to allow this to be a reflection of uh, what you feel called to and what you might act towards. This is going to be a good one. And if you would like to support this podcast, uh, please hop on my newsletter. You can find it at erigazzi.com. And I got two courses that you can check out. One is a journaling course, which will help you begin journaling, of course. That was a pun. I'm sorry, I just over-explained. That's kind of what I do. I Okay. And the second one is called the Dharma Journal, which is a seven-day guided meditation to help you connect to your daemon and then will give you a technology to basically touch base with that every day to help you stay on track. And as always, I deeply appreciate that you offer your time and your attention to this podcast. There's a lot going on in the world, and I appreciate that you chose to show up here. Love you. Kyle, it's so nice to have you on the podcast. We've been trying to manifest this really for over a year now, but we had a we actually manifested digitally on both sides of these of this computer tube uh, a couple of weeks ago. And um, it didn't work, but in a type of synchronistic way that uh, I think would make skeptics feel funny in their tummy and not know <laughs> how to actually articulate what it is that their nervous system was trying to tell them. Some perfect things have happened since the last time that you and I tried to talk. And it feels like instead of doing an ordinary podcast uh, where I basically um, bring forth your inner child to the microphone, <laughs> um, I would really love to hear about what's been unfolding for you and how it ties into what's been alive for both of us. But before you tell the story, I would love to give you a chance to introduce yourself to this motherfucking tribe, you know, to all these people that uh, are listening who haven't met you yet. Yeah, thank you, brother. Pleasure to be here. Everything is unfolding in divine timing, as always. And if I were to describe myself to 
a unknown group of people. (laughs) (laughs) I would say all the good things and only the good things. Um, I've been trying to move away from labels recently because they really just put us in a box. So it's hard to describe myself without labels, but I am a yeah, seeker. The quick thing that I would offer there is um, in the way that having lines down the middle of the road helps us not murder people as much. <laughs> like there is a little utility in some labeling, but don't get, don't forget that you have the key. Okay, cool. Um, so I'll try to keep it out of the rhubarb with some labels. So I am a seeker. I'm curious about all things. I am an outdoor enthusiast. I've been climbing for about 14 years and that has really shaped who I am as an individual. And what I found there also is my connection to nature, which is seeming to be one of the most important aspects of my life at this stage of my life and probably until I die. And I also like to write. I like to support people. Uh, I work as an integration coach, specifically around psychedelics. But I've also recognized that all of life is ceremony and therefore all of life requires integration. So I work Mm -hmm. on a one-on-one basis with people to support them through that. And I'm just really, really grateful as well. I'm a big practicer um, of gratitude in general. And if I can bring gratitude as my default state, then everything's good. And when things seem not good, it's because I've forgotten that. Hmm. So what the fuck's been going on, man? Oh, everything. Everything. So as I go back to that identity as a climber, you know, that's consumed many years of my life. I created a um, climbing business called Hidden Rock Tours, where I offer fully catered climbing experience experiences and I was an apprentice rock guide as of last year and essentially that has become unfulfilling so here I am in the dead of summer and I still want (laughs) to get out and climb because that's like that's where my inner child lives you know in that adventure and that exploration and also my I've been able to loosen my ego's grip to that activity and to that identity in recognizing that there's things that are bigger and more important than me going out and having this hedonistic pursuit. And the thing that came across my radar most recently is this movement at Ferry Creek. Ferry Creek is a section of land on Vancouver Island, and it's also home to some old growth forests. So trees that are up to and over 200 or sorry, 2000 years old. And in recognition of the significance of these trees, some people have started in action to protect them because there is a logging company called Teal Jones that has the tree farming license to the area. And they have publicly stated that they want to continue to log old growth forests until there's nothing left. And so I heard about this Some friends brought it to my attention. And at first I was like, okay, you know, this is, this is a thing, just another problem with the world. And is this where I want to be putting my time and attention and energy? And I began to look into it a little bit And this action 
of protection has been going on for 320 days. Wow. And this is a massive expanse of land. I don't know the actual acreage, but there's essentially multiple logging roads that access these trees. And people have taken it upon themselves to self-organize and create these blockades. And in these blockades, they literally chain themselves to the earth. So they will dig a trench and create a contraption called the dragon. So there's all sorts of different types of dragons. And so they, they dig a hole or a trench. They put in a piece of tubing that's big enough for their arm. They put a piece of rebar that goes across like perpendicular to the tubing so they can chain themselves to it. They then surround that tubing in cement and bury the whole thing in the earth so that once it's complete, they can lie on the ground, put their hand in the tube, and with a carabiner, attach themselves to the piece of rebar. So this is to prevent the logging company from getting past with their equipment. Now, obviously, they have not taken kindly to this, and they have sought um, legal action. So they have gone to court and they have gotten an injunction, which states that the protesters can no longer impede the logging company from accessing the land that they have been given permission to log. So with that, the police enforcement comes to play. So the police enforcement is present on the front lines, and they're the ones that are trying to dig these people out of the dragons. So they're coming in with backhoes and excavating the earth, and then coming in with jackhammers and grinders and all sorts of crazy equipment that is literally inches away from the person's body, from the person's face sometime, and just going in to try to extract these people. Now, once they get past person one, there's person two behind them and person three and person four. And there's also these other contraptions that are like tripods built out of logs where a person is sitting at the top of the tripod and they present the same challenges to the police. How do they get this person out of there without doing harm to them? So it's this, this crazy game that is on a plain board that expands on all different sides of these mountains. And it's this game of chess where the cops try to take some ground up the road, right? Try to clear all the blockades. And then the protesters will kind of come back and gain ground back down the road. And it's moving back and forth. And where it gets a little more intense is that the cops are actually coming in in the evening, raiding camps, stealing things, um, being aggressive with people, and really kind of doing harm to certain people, um, and particularly the minorities. So that's kind of the synopsis of this immediate action, but there's all sorts of nuanced complexity, but maybe I'll pause for a second, see yeah. if you have any questions. I have so many questions. This is incredibly interesting. And um, there's a lot of things that are spiraling out of my cranium. Um, it does feel responsible to, to share with anyone listening that, um, and this is not to put more responsibility on you, but it is the truth of the dance is that I don't know anything about this story. And so I am 
uh, completely dependent on your sharing to get the landscape and so is the audience. But, you know, obviously I would invite people who are listening, who feel curious in this to go do research and, um, you know, please share with us the things that you find. With that said, there's a lot of things that I think are dramatically interesting about this. The first one is that, um, and this I'm going to try to go in order, but you said that the logging company, what's their name? Teal Jones. That they said, uh, was it a quote that they literally said until there's nothing left? Of the old growth forest, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. And... Do you know anything about the history of the like economic transaction between whatever this company is and um, whatever the, I'm imagining, governmental body that is selling the land to them and they bought the land from the government? I know a little bit, and I will actually follow up your disclaimer that I literally only know a little bit because this came onto my radar super recently, and I haven't been on the front lines in action. I was there for five days, but I haven't been there long enough to fully understand the depth of everything that's happening. And that's why I intend to return. And if you want more information, you could check out the Rainforest Flying Squad on Instagram. That will link you to their website as well. And then the immediate action is the Fairy Creek Blockade. So that's the name of their Instagram handle as well. And if you dive into that, you'll get a much bigger picture than I'll be able to paint in this conversation. And I will say what I do know about your question is that, and this is really the crux of the situation, this is unceded territory that belongs to the Pachidat First Nation. And so belongs is a loose word, but essentially they're the guardians of the land. And they have a band council which is a non-hereditary representation or a representative or several representatives that speak on behalf of the nation itself. And they have signed a contract with Teal Jones and the government that this tree farming license can be allotted to Teal Jones. Oh, wow. Now, when we think about the band council, and this is where I don't know enough, and I'll get into how I feel about that in a bit. The notion of a band council, from my understanding, is something that was created by the government. So what we're looking at is a colonial system that has created a colonial entity that is a representative of the rightful indigenous people of the land So they could coerce and control to get what they want. And what we're talking about is the extraction of resources for profit and capitalism to the point of utter destruction of everything that supports us as human beings on this planet. That's fucking fascinating. And um, if you're someone listening who thinks that that way of looking at the world is conspiratorial, I invite you to um, any type of uh, earnest reflection of how Western culture uh, spread and um, how wars are conducted, like literally almost any book. Because like the interesting thing is that most people who have strong opinions um, 
if it's if the way that they express their opinion is fundamentally emotional, the chances of them having done, I mean, even a collective 10 hours over the course of their life of earnest, which assumes that you don't know, uh, research on any of the things that they have violently passionate opinions about, um, they probably haven't. And my understanding is that that's entirely possible as a strategy that specific uh, entities um, in our cultural game would choose to play, which is fascinating. And I would love to know more um, as, as this unfolds. The next thing that came up, and this is something that I'm struggling with actively, is <clears throat> at what level of engagement is the most effective use of my unique skill set. And that one of the things that came up is that if the company has gotten to a point where it's using essentially inflammatory language, like that's not something an, an impartial company, you know, would say. <clears throat> my assumption is that the people in power of that company have had more than one interactions with types of people that they perceive as these are the people that are in our way that have hurt them. And whether or not that's objectively third-party true or would be true in the court of law, their little boy or little girl who they've ignored their entire life, that they've created this persona that has a suit, um, very likely has had individual one-on-one -on -one interactions with people <clears throat> that they're viewing as the opposition. Um, which would be the alliance that you're a part of um, or that you're interested in supporting, um, that it's hurt them. And now they're moving from an emotional place. And that <clears throat> one of the things that I think about is um, if I could tell a story or get in the room with the people um, who are moving the pieces of paper that represent these abstract laws that then are mobilizing warriors that we call cops, um, would it be more effective? Would it be quicker? Would it result in less suffering? Would it even be possible? You know, I truly don't know anything about these humans at all, but it feels like they're moving from a tribal place and not just a purely economic place, but that the um, foundation emotion is, or the foundation motivation is economic. And this is one of the things that I'm deeply struggling with in my existential dance um, and trying to figure out how can I actually be in alignment with nature while being inside of a culture that operates from an economic place that um, the land or that mother nature can be carved up and given to other, like if you imagine humans ourselves, we've created this really weird game where some cells can can sell the right of different parts of the tissues that they make up to other cells that you know have a extra uh, reservoir of glucose or whatever. And then those cells that don't depend on that tissue can just come and extract all the like atomic structure of that tissue. And that the function of colonialism on one level, if you use that metaphor, is like, a part of the body has gotten really good at eating other parts of the body. And as long as that part of the body is not eating itself, it thinks that it's okay. And then a part of the craziness is that when you really feel into our mental health situation, that part of the body is eating itself. And so we're in this really interesting time where 
Uh, it seems to be, and this is a radical thing to claim, but if we don't fundamentally change our story about economics, uh, we're going to kill the body. And this feels like this is one of thousands of parts of the body that is the earth that is dying as a result of an unconscious system. And then when you add wounded boys or girls that have developed the persona to be able to wield a suit and move papers that represent laws, and you hurt them because you're defending your part of the land in ways that might not be the most you know, psychologically insightful, but that is probably not your burden to bear, but it is a part of the equation that that just amps up these like inflammatory colonial cells. Yeah, 100%. So we are doing things for the benefit of the individual cells or cells that have organized together at the detriment of the overall organism. Earth is the organism. We are an extension of the earth. And it's crazy that our small individual egos have not been able to zoom out and expand into greater awareness. And I don't think it's any direct fault of the individual, but of the traumatized system as a whole, which perpetuates trauma to the individuals and the conditioning that is presented upon us from the second we like are born into the earth, that it's all about consume, 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 right? As we're controlled through AI marketing and everything else. And so- Which is the uh, modus operandi of a cancer cell. If your highest motivational value is to consume only, uh, you become cancerous. And of course, there's a part of your development when you're fucking weeks old, where that is the only program, and that's as it should be. But if you're a 34 or a 50-year-old baby, and that's still the top motivational function, and you're able to wield massive machinery to feed other wounded people, and so you think, and then you are inside of a company whose you are legally compelled to maximize profit, legally compelled to always grow, uh, we're probably not going to end up in a situation where we're not looking out at random parts of the earth and seeing that it's decimated. Because it's still this like egocentric focus rather than an ecocentric focus. So yeah. this idea of competition and wealth and asset accumulation at the detriment of other people is just absurd, especially when it comes back to our natural resources. And one of the things, I mean, and I've, I have so many questions, but I'm already opening it up and it's going different places. But you mentioned earlier that one of the things that you uh, have been dancing with is what to lend your energy and attention to. Mm -hmm. That's something that I'm currently in the tension of not knowing. And so I'm curious, what was your experience that um, helped you feel and have a knowing that this was the thing to currently contribute your fucking life to? Well, I think prior to this experience at Fairy Creek, I already knew that I had to help people deepen their connection. So I see that as a three-tiered system where it's connection to self, connection to others, and connection to nature. And the they are wow. all very complementary to one another. And this is still an evolving process as, you know, I haven't got to the full evolution past my adolescence because of the system that we live in. It, it doesn't promote those initiatory processes. And some culture, cultures still have that. 
and we would benefit as a whole if we were all to go through those initiatory processes. So I went out to Ferry Creek kind of unaware of the impact it would have upon me. <laughs> yeah. And when I got there, I was just amazed um, by how people have come together and self-organized. And when we speak about um, the rebel and the revolutionary, as I've heard mm. Aubrey speak about it, the rebel is somebody who fights the existing system and the revolutionary is somebody who creates a new system. And what we see in this movement is both. I wouldn't say that they're actively fighting Teal Jones and the government enforcement officers that are present. They're resisting them so that they don't just come in and steamroll the 1% of old growth that remains on Vancouver Island. So they're trying to get in the way to slow it down so that the appropriate legal action in court can take place to hopefully have some kind of agreement where the wishes of the Pachidat nation are actually honored. Now, in that act of perceived uh, rebellion, there's also the revolutionary aspect in how these people have come together. It's very multicultural. And it's also widely accepting, deeply connected to one another. And it's this mutual aid organization where people are standing up for something bigger than themselves. Yeah. I don't know the exact count, but I think it's over 300 people have been arrested. And when you go to the front lines, they ask you if you are able and willing to be arrested. And people are like, fuck yeah. And in that, it, I, I wish it were more peaceful, but it's not. People uh, maybe. I don't know how to word this appropriately because I haven't seen enough of it, but it seems like the majority of people are not getting roughed up, but people are getting roughed up. People are getting traumatized through psychological warfare. They're getting coerced. They're getting threatened. There is um, sexual marks being made towards women. And there are also certain camps at blockades that are purely indigenous people. And what we're witnessing there is the indigenous people are getting worse treated than the white settlers, as has been the pattern since colonialism began. And so this is a perpetual pattern that is super complex, like I mentioned, but it's far more than just the trees. It's about a broken system coming and clashing with a potential new system. In the new system is something that really appeals to me, how these people are self-reliant and able to self-organize on this crazy game board um, and willing to hike through the night with all like with heavy ass packs and to work through the night and to support one another. Now, really, the I must acknowledge like again my ignorance to the situation in my white privilege. I have no idea what it's like. To be an indigenous person. And this is actually where I carry shame because I'm not aware of the true history of Canada. I'm aware of what I was taught. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not aware of what these people have been through. I'm not aware of how they have suffered and been mistreated. And now in the mainstream media, we are having the truth come to the surface. When we look at the residential school in Kamloops, where they just unearthed 215 children's bodies that were buried there, that were murdered during their time at this residential school. We have another situation in Saskatchewan where they unearth 700 corpses of children. And these residential schools, for anybody that doesn't know, please do your research because I don't know enough. But essentially, they were government-instilled education systems that were designed to take the people off their land, out of their culture, and to condition them to the culture of uh, the white settlers. And all sorts of trauma ensued and abuse, and ultimately it seems like murder, right? So we're talking about genocide, and this genocide continues to exist as and, you know, I, I'm painting the government as, as the bad guy, but I don't really know else know what else to say. Obviously, there's um, some benevolence within that system, but these were all systems designed by the government. Um, it seems that they're trying to eradicate a whole tradition, a whole culture, a whole wisdom. And what that wisdom is, is earth wisdom. And so they're perpetuating separation from the earth, which perpetuates these traumatized systems, which is led, well, it's led humanity to the path that we're on, which doesn't look that good. There's a few things that come up that feel important and nuanced. Um, I think that uh, without having to question the investigative and earnest um, journalistic um, investigation of those two schools, there is a point that remains true regardless of whether or not um, those two examples are in the energy that was presented. And it's that every single one of us who has a functioning empathetic heart that is not of the genetic lineage of the humans that cultivated whatever piece of land they exist on first, because there was some group that it was the first that cultivated the land that you were on. And the chances of you having that genetic lineage is low. Like I know for me, I have no no genetic lineage to North America. And that a part of um, doing enough work where you can actually arrive in the present moment. Because one of the things to feel into is most of us are essentially still trying to heal being caught in the past. And that's like fundamentally the traumas that we've gone through and the things that have happened to us that we haven't quite uh, integrated or find equanimity with or found a perspective that, uh, that gives us self-efficacy and self-belief. But People who have done enough work to be able to arrive in the present moment and then actually start to look around and begin to feel, um, all of us are going to have to confront the shame and the guilt that whether or not you can philosophically argue it's you should feel it, most people with an empathetic heart will feel it. And it's that I live on land that 
very likely was um, claimed in warlike strategy, whether or not it was explicit or implicit, that led to the suffering and death of hundreds of thousands or of millions of people. And one of the things that feels like was such a big part of the political atmosphere in the last five years was that, um, you know, the quote unquote children of colonialism, which you and I both are, um, our instinct dependent on what our upbringing is, is to either hyper jump to the side that is shaming and guilting. And not that there's a side that's shaming and guilting, but jumping to a side that is wielding shame as guilt and guilt as a potential persuasive device. There's those type of people. And then there's the people who, how their trauma informed them, they become radically angry in defense of not wanting to feel any guilt or any shame about uh, the life that they have. And this has fundamentally fallen into the new vibrational stance of the, you know, and these are such low resolution words, but the left and the right as it's unfolding in North America. And it is something that I personally struggle with is, and it's actually been a part of my existential crisis that's been unfolding for the last, um, almost three months, which is I feel because I'm connecting to the earth really for the first time in my fucking life. Like if I could really feel into my developmental disassociation from anything truly in harmony with nature, like it's been 30 years. Mm. And in order for me to begin to feel the psychological significance of what nature has to teach me as a psychotherapist, I'm having to deal with the fact that um, I've been disassociated from her in such a way where I perpetuated trauma to her and then to myself and then to everyone that I've interacted with on some level because of my disassociation. And it's been uh, crushing because the call, in the same way that you share, that you now have a call to actually try to learn the history of Canada, which by the way, you could spend your entire life and still maybe just be scraping the surface of like, like, you know, one of the impossible philosophical attempts of history, of history writing, is how the fuck can you condense the nuanced myriad infinity into a book, you know, and then into words. And there will always be things that you miss, no matter how earnest or how honest you are. So in the same way that you're feeling that call to try to learn the history of Canada, um, my inflated ego and super intense rational mind feels like he's responsible to now understand the history of Western civilization and also the like geological history and biological and evolutionary history of earth and like how culture has attacked earth. But it's overwhelming, man. Mm -hmm. And I could feel in you that just touching the shame that is actually guarding the call from your soul to like learn the history of Canada in a way that actually illuminates to you um, the colonial um, effect on the indigenous people. Uh, like, basically, I see you and good luck, you yeah. know. Yeah, thank you, brother. It does seem a lot. And so again, it's like, where will I, 
concentrate my efforts and understanding the past is a powerful tool to prevent us from repeating the same errors. And I also want to stay rooted in the present where I can take action. Yeah. Right. And so there's this idea of reconciliation in Canada where we can work with First Nations to try to get to that place of resolve. And maybe that's impossible given what they've been through and what, what they've suffered. But I think it is worth trying. And, and I think the, the first point, the first starting point is in admitting what has happened. Right. And it's this dark shadow of, of Canada and of the U.S. and of other places in the world where it's Western like culture. Yeah. Western culture. Let's, let's begin by admitting what actually transpired. Maybe after that, we could start to heal and come together and create something beautiful. But as long as we remain these separate cancer cells, we're never going to come together to create more beautiful experience. And if we don't come together, our natural resources are being depleted. And a lot of brilliant minds say 50 to 70 years until we can't yeah. sustain human life on Earth. One of the things that arises um, that is a part of the, that is one of the fundamental like traps that earnest people on both sides of any of the arguments that um, come down to uh Basically, you know, if you understood the history of X, you would really be able to see what I'm saying is that there's not a neat list of facts that you could present on a piece of paper and be like, this is the truth. This is what happened. Um, the way that life lives is that that is never going to be something that can actually like that will always be a map and never the territory. Mm -hmm. And the chances of that being an accurate enough map for you to navigate almost any part of life meaningfully is low. Like it's, it's hard to do that type of shit. Well, like it's hard to understand the birthday that you went to yesterday from the perspective of the eight people who did it. Like, that literally could probably be an entire semester in some philosophy course at some university just to go through that. And then to try to make sense of 100 or 200 or 300 years that has taken in the perspective of maybe a billion people, it's impossible to, if that's the goal, but that is not the goal. And I think a part of the conversation is, um, can we... And whoever you're having the direct dialogue with, can we figure out what we agree on? And then can we both present even one, like, here's something that has happened in the past. Here's what I think it means. And here's what I think it is still doing today. Mm. What do you think? Because like, man, social media is just a regurgitation of people stuck in their tribal thinking, creating memes that the other people in their tribe can use as like low resolution insults for the other people. And then it antagonizes the other people. Like one of the, it's such a great um, like personal development tool to pick any issue that is controversial and then go find where on the internet they are currently making the most like popular memes and go through the side A's memes 
and really see the fucking straw man caricature that they all have of group B and then go to the group B site and look at their memes and see the low resolution caricature that they have of A. Those two groups, if they use those type of talking points, will never get anything done and the systems will continue to churn in a way where we won't have a fucking earth in a hundred years. And one of the things that I've struggled with is like, how do I invite my friends who care to stop doing that shit? Because that's the only shit that I, it's the only shit that I see them do. That like, what's really interesting is the people who repost those type of memes, um, if I ever see them in person, it almost never comes up. Like it's just not what's at the top of their mind and something that actually triggers me personally about people that have strong beliefs on either side of an issue that you are the opposite of, which is why this is so refreshing, is that they, if you measured belief in something by whether or not you act upon that belief, which is my measurement of belief, um, most of the people that repost memes about anything, they don't believe shit because they are still living their lives in the exact same way that they were before. And they're not actively trying to do something to improve the problem that they see other than reposting memes. And um, so I, 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 I wanted to put that on the table because it feels like if there are people listening who, for whatever reason, if I have some uh, section of my podcast that seem to be like far right, you know, like, they flinch at the idea of, you know, indigenous people should be treated in such a way. And I'm falling into caricatures like that. But I just wanted to put that on the table that it's really hard to understand the true history of any culture or any civilization. Which kind of ties into nonviolent communication because in nonviolent communication, we're trying to speak to the objective truth. And we all have stories of who we are and how the world is. And an area where I've actually been fascinated is in ceremony or entheogenic experience where I go out there and I say that I just had a game of poker with uh, Jesus and the Buddha and somebody's like, well, fuck you, you did. And there's no way I can prove that I did. And there's no way they can disprove that I did. And so where can we get everybody to the objective felt experience? And I think that that's the really interesting distinction is that because I think some people might get stuck on objective truth, whereas the truth as we know it is the agreed upon felt experience mm -hmm. and that we can start there. We can actually start there. Mm -hmm. And so where I began to find some truth in my experience at Ferry Creek and my new awareness of the history in Canada is that I was rocked. Like the emotion that just came through in this podcast came through there several times. Many times there was an elder named Grandma Rose who was speaking uh, during the ceremony. And every time, she, so it's a giant circle with maybe a hundred people. And every time she walked by me, I would just like have this emotional wave. Another time when we're speaking about our camp names, because everybody has camp names similar to like Burning Man. When I was speaking about my camp name, which is black feather, which is given to me in, in a mystical way, that brought a ton of shame as well. Because it's like, who am I to claim this name that has indigenous connotation when I sit in my white privilege and know nothing about the um, travesty that has transpired in Canada? And so, if I may, 
mm-hmm. something that comes up to that last point. And I think that this is important for people who feel called to be bridges between the colonial culture that they're children of and then the indigenous people that they have empathetic hearts for and that they can feel. And it's that um, you don't know nothing, but you know very little. Mm-hmm. And you can feel in you that you are earnestly called to know more mm-hmm. and that you are literally there and that they have given it to you or at least some, some en- energetic force that is an offshoot of the tribes that cultivated that. It's being shared and that you don't know nothing and that you are actively there trying. Like one, one of the really interesting things to feel into is that if you genuinely believe that you are being called to help group A to, and that you need to function in the world effectively, if you are using or if, if you are in this weird, like almost spiritual bypassing, like not using your compassionate tools to actually feel into that reality tunnel being something that's not compassionate at, at all to you. That there's almost the, like, I ought to feel shameful to be worthy of having the opportunity to help these people. But if you're an agent, if, if you're an organism trying to help situation A, and you think that it's good for you to layer shame and guilt on top of you, you become a less effective agent Mm -hmm. to help that organism. And it doesn't have to be that way. Mm -hmm. I don't think I need to feel those things. Those were the authentic feelings that came up in, in, in being in it. um, It allows me to move through it and no doubt they will come in waves. And I do agree that acting uh, beyond emotion with intention rather than reactivity will be my best course of action as with everybody else. Right. Yeah. And when we, when we think about these incendiary confrontations on the front lines between people, it's like if the cops are coming at the indigenous people with violence, the indigenous people are also presenting hate towards those cops before the interaction even begins. So there is this, um, this emotional charge that's present, that's based on past experiences that might not even be personal, but generational. Right. And that's not as soon as long as we stay in this um, arena of the other, like the other is, is the bad guy is the competition is the one who wants to do me harm. We're never going to move forward. And there have been some some breakthroughs that have occurred in this movement at Ferry Creek, where, for one example, uh, of uh, a story that's becoming myth fairly quickly is this woman whose name is Dolphin. She was on the front line. She was in a device um, that's a dragon, but this one's a giant log. So the log is running perpendicular to the road, and she's essentially there's a hole through the center of the log. So she's like hugging it and her hands are tied together in the middle. And then the cops come in and try to extract her. And I wasn't there for this, but my understanding is that there wasn't a strong police force, but there was two officers who were basically trying to like coerce her out of the contraption because these devices are designed so that the person can remove themselves anytime they choose to. 
so this individual dolphin is strapped to the log. She's speaking to these police officers and trying to connect to, to the person, right? Not the title that is the cop, but the person, and not even the person, but the man or woman, because person actually has a different connotation. If you are to look it up in certain dictionaries, it's actually listed as a corporation. So the individual has been turned into a corporation under the Corporation of Canada, right? So there you're taking away the responsibility and the rights that are associated with a man and woman. So this woman dolphin is speaking to the man and woman that are assuming the role of police officers. And nobody knows exactly what she said, but she got to a point where she evoked emotion in both of them. Both police officers were crying. She was crying, they were crying, and they were connecting, right, beyond the guise of other. And what they did was they gave her some reprieve in, they, in that moment. They, they gave her a little bit of leeway. They like walked away, gave her space. They're like, hey, you can come out of that, get some water, stretch, whatever you got to do. We'll give you like X amount of time. I don't know what it was. But it's those breakthrough moments th- that is what we need. We need to be connecting to the other in that felt experience. Do you, so there's a couple of questions um, and I'll just drop them and then you can pick up whichever one uh, you want to. But one of my questions is, do you know what the history is of the creation of this movement? Like the who's and the what's and the where's, or if there's a place online that people can go to really understand how this began, because it seems like it has an essence of magic to it. And I mean, magic as in there is something yet to be articulated as a way of conducting ourselves that we could take forward to help other places that um, are hurt. Number two, um, has there been, or I guess number two would be, do you know like literally who the people are that are the choice makers for the entities that are um, of the logging company? And are there attempts being made by anyone on the Alliance side to have those type of moments potentially with those people where human to human can begin to speak and maybe cry and maybe connect. The organization that started this movement is called the rain, uh, rainforest flying squad. And so if people were to look that up online, they could kind of get a sense of its origins. I don't know enough about it, but obviously these are very selfless people that, I've seen an area where action is needed and they've gone for it. And so at the particular camp, there's a group of individuals that are kind of like loosely the, the organizers and the strategists. And I haven't been around camp enough to crack into that inner circle. I'll be returning uh, likely on Canada day, which is kind of fitting. Hmm. And the, um, from the other side, like the, the legal battle. So you could imagine that there's tears to this, right? To this conflict. And obviously there's, there's the lawyers from both sides. I've spoke to one of the legal representatives from our Alliance to try to get some insight. And I have um, plans to speak to more, to gain a greater understanding. And I think your idea of getting people in the same room and being like, hey, this is what I'm feeling. Again, let's start with nonviolent communication and lead with vulnerability. This is how I'm feeling. 
can can be powerful, but we're talking about like the deconstruction of ma- major egos, not the individual egos of the the man or woman, but also like the entity that's been built around that. And they have this like they're in this echo chamber, much like we you were alluding to in social media, where their views of the world have just been reinforced. And these people have been blinded by by greed and money. So the Teal Jones logging organization is this generational thing that I think I saw originated sometime in the 1800s. So they've been doing this forever. And they're like, yeah, Mm. this, this is it. This is the way, you know, their epistemology has conditioned them into this myopic point of view where they're not looking at the greater systems beyond their, their system. Yeah, this brings up a really core issue to anyone who feels called to be a revolutionary. And I absolutely am one, and I, or I feel called to be one. And I feel that um, most of the people listening to this podcast also are. And it's that uh, I don't know, and I hope to spend you know the rest of my life trying to know a little bit more, of if it's even possible to create change at any organizational level higher than the individual. Because when you feel into, like if you attempt to have empathy for the humans that are operating inside of this entity that is this corporation, if it's a multi-general or multi-generation corporation, there's a whole family tree of humans who don't want to feel pain and who genuinely love or who have the capacity to genuinely love. And that everything they've ever known that was good, not everything, but almost everything, they believe is because of the functioning of the entity of the corporation. That the food the children have ate, the homes the children have lived in, the opportunities that they've had in life and the successes and the marriages and all of that is a function of this entity operating. And if the entity is attacked, they're going to mobilize like an immune system for the entity. But that if they have a transformative experience where they move from egocentric awareness to, or from egocentric to ecocentric, they might begin having dialogue with the people who are close to them. They might start to change in a way where the people close to them become interested. And that the people at the helm of this thing might choose to stop. Now, I can feel how naive that sounds even (laughs) saying that. And that one of the things that's heavy is that maybe if we had five generations to work on this, that that could be a way to go about it. But we might not have three generations. Uh, And that's the result of really smart people earnestly trying to look at all the different data sets it's not just a number that we're, that we're pulling out of our ass. But that it does seem that the way to make sure that the cells inside of the company or the organism are the most anti-against change is to try to deconstruct the ego of the company. But I don't know. I think we're wired for defense as <laughs> people that are, uh, you know, organisms that are based on survival. So any any action that's viewed as attack is just going to create counterattack or defense, right? So we're, there's no point of connection there. 
And in, in thinking about this whole situation, I've, it's also made me think of The Fifth Sacred Thing, the book mm. by Starhawk. Mm. And so as a quick synopsis for the listener, The Fifth Sacred Thing is based in a dystopian future. However, there is a group of people who have created a utopia within that. So they are the minority. And of course, the majority, much like colonialism, comes and tries to steamroll them and take them over and control them. So the minority recognizes that they cannot combat that system that just has so much momentum that there's no way you're going to stand up to it. And some people do want to fight. They want to get the little guns and ammunition that they have, and they want to go to war with this giant system. And the cooler heads try to prevail throughout that inner debate of strategy. And what they end up doing is trying to invite that larger domineering system to join them. And the line that they say is, there is a seat for you at our table waiting for you, or however it goes precisely. Essentially saying, you could join us whenever you want. So as we speak about revolutionaries, we can create a system that's so beautiful and joyful and inclusive that naturally the people of the quote-unquote opposition will be allured by that. Yeah. If they're like, oh, damn, I could be accepted over there for who I am and I get to go and create and be in nature and grow my own food and dance and sing and love people. And if that's something completely foreign to them that they haven't experienced, of course that's going to speak to their soul. And their ego might deny it for as long as possible. But when a soul speaks in truth, other souls listen. Mm. I can feel first completely resonate, completely agree. And I feel the call to finally actually read that book. I started to read it a couple of years ago and I didn't, um, I tried to listen to it and just with the way my brain's wired, if it's something I really care about, I want to read it. But um, it feels like a part of it. So it feels like at least from where I'm looking that the emergence of this new game that could potentially invite the larger, sicker game to join it um, will be a multi-generational project. And that if certain actions are taken, we can get a couple of generations to potentially have this swing. And that our generation, which is really like the first or maybe second generation that's really began to wake up to the fact of like, oh, the way this thing is churning eats up everything. Uh, we have to figure out something. Um, it feels like the responsibility of our generation will be different based off of each individual u- unique genius, you know, because we all have our own type of genius, but that it's to make the bridges. You know, I, I do think there are some visionaries who are going to imagine like the first prototype of how do you organize how do you create goods in a way where people don't die? Um, that is in this new system and that will be their role. But something that I feel like I have a company, I run a business and that's completely in the old game. There's a, like mm-hmm. I do my best to try to run it in a way where um, it's the least cancerous as possible. And I do think that there's technicalities here, but the fact that I'm never going to make it a public company, I won't have to be um, 
legally beholden to maximize growth over every year. And that if not, I'm, you know, fucking breaking the law and shareholders can sue me or take me to jail or whatever. But um, is to create like games within the broken game that slowly start to like Trojan horse ideas of the new game. And so like for me, that would be creating courses that is still, I'm still selling a thing, you know, and it, it's, it's still operating in this thing where like, I have my own money, I have my own ideas and I package those and I sell those ideas and then I get money back from you. That's still in the old game. But that can the things that are taught inside of that or can the products that some people who are listening are entrepreneurial, can they bring forth the type of felt senses that lends itself to first being able to feel how fucking broken the system we're in is and can start to show you that there's another way of being that can set you on fire in the most beautiful way. And um, I'm curious how that lands for you. That Do you think that, um, or do you personally feel called to try to I guess a different way is I won't give you a false dichotomy. What part of this dance do you feel called to uh, direct your life towards? I agree with you that news, there are parts of the existing system that can be gamed in order to have greater benevolence, in order to help people kind of come to awareness of alternatives. And really, I think that's about people developing that self-awareness. And so what I'm called to, again, is that connection piece, right? So there, there is a fine line here, I think, where the spiritual um, kind of consensus is that the way you create greater change is by changing yourself, right? You know, be the change you want to see in the world, go within, work through your trauma, work through your shit, and then come out and do something. Yes, there's a lot of validity to that. And we don't got that much time. So if you could do that in a collective that's also actively seeking to create new systems, that would be really beautiful. Because what happens when you come together with a group of like-minded people is you do have those reflections that bring you back to yourself, to a deeper understanding of yourself, especially when you're showing up in such a way that you're willing to do the work, to willing to sit in discomfort. And this is something that we see in Fit for Service. Right, and this is something that the group of people at the Ferry Creek blockade have potential to do as well, right? So, what I want to find out is what is their vision? How, like, what do they want to do with this collective? Because it can be the model for something really powerful that can be duplicated elsewhere. Yeah, one of the things that comes up that I think is important to articulate is that I agree with the idea that. we have limited time. And so you don't, I don't feel the uh, spiritual luxury of spending the rest of my life just dealing with my past. But the thing that comes to mind that feels like it's the and, not the but, but the and, is normally when people feel like they're moving from a place of urgency, their ability to think clearly about complex situations that have multi-variables attached to it gets worse. Mm -hmm. That's human nature 101. And that the chances of making big 
choices from a place of urgency that lead to a better outcome than the shitty outcomes you're already getting is low. And that, you know, there's the, I believe it's the Navy SEALs uh, motto that slow is smooth and smooth is fast. Mm -hmm. And that a part of doing, like do enough work where when you feel the need to be urgent, that you can regulate your nervous system to a point where you can look clearly and then make mature, subtly elegant choices that have the potential to actually give you a better outcome than the current ones that we have. Because we're in such a sticky situation where that a tremendous amount of human suffering would begin tomorrow if we totally got rid of the system. Mm -hmm. Billions of people would start dying. Not instantly, but some people would start dying instantly. Like if we just change the way that we use machineries and food supplies and, and antibiotics and blah, blah, blah. And that all of these solutions are more, com- not all of them, but many of what's go- a lot of what is going right is more complex than anyone knows. And the fact that it's going right, no one actually knows exactly how. Like there's this thing that happens in programming where you write code, it solves nine out of 10 problems. You try to tweak something just to solve problem 10. And now problem two, four, six, and eight don't work. And you have no idea why, because you actually don't understand the code elegantly enough to know why it's solved. You just know that it fucking did. And they actually have a term for that in computer programming. And that that is the situation of trying to like, if you're trying to change a fundamental aspect of this big system, be earnest and do the work required to show up to the helicopter as a true mechanic and not as someone who took an intro into how helicopters kill people, class 101, and then you're going to go try to repair or redesign a helicopter that humans have to fly. Yeah, heard. Uh, and I 100% agree. And there was something floating around in social media recently that said, if the internet were to crash globally for 30 minutes, it would cost $50 billion and the, the world would be like in utter chaos, right? And that would be enough to screw up our supply chains where people would be dying, right? So we do have to think about the, there is elegance in the current system and it could also use an upgrade. Without a doubt, without a doubt. And this is demonstrated in this like uh, mental health crisis, right? With 50% of people having a major mental ailment, whether it's depression or anxiety or addiction of some sort, right? Chronic pain. Um, So what do we do? Well, we start actually looking outside of what we know right? In being creative, we are creative beings. We're, we're actually here to be an extension of the creator, whatever that means to you. So yeah. like, let's get back to our imagination. And really what um, promotes that imagination is being out in nature and like mm-hmm. listening, listening in that stillness, allowing things to come through, allowing that greater intelligence to create emergence in each one of us. Right. And so that's where I want to put some energy is in creating that felt experience out in nature. And in part, that's what my climbing business was about. And whatever I'm about to build next will certainly include that. And it feels like 
this is a natural segue into the current project that you are putting out into the world um, from a Dharma standpoint. Mm -hmm. And you call it Soul Path. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So Soul Path, I have, when I started at the beginning of last year, I think it was during the initial lockdown of the pandemic, which is another symptom of the system, the broken system that we're in, but that might be a different conversation. <laughs> so I had time on my hands and I was actually, um, you know, synchronistically, I ended up at home with my parents for three months. So what an opportunity to look at my own shit in that <laughs> reflection from my parents. Yeah. God damn, was it hard, but it was also beautiful. You know, I went through this whole arc of like righteousness, judgment, uh, acceptance and then shame and then ulti- ultimately to greater love for my parents and myself in that mm-hmm. situation. And I also got commissioned by another uh, Fit for Service member. Shout out to Lisa. Thank you so much for that opportunity to create this program for her small s- staff in her marketing agency. So I had mm-hmm. free reign to share whatever wow. I thought was the most important things for people. And so those things include um, awareness, um, self-care practices, nonviolent communication, a look at our conditioning, internal family systems, and then also this uh, loose program of closing loops, which has to deal with the actual introspection. So this is all about bringing people closer to themselves, right? Because as we dismantle the story of who we think we are, we could get to who we truly are. And maybe we could get to that state beyond adolescence, which according to Bill Plotkin, and only 20% of the population is beyond that point. Yeah. And so how has that unfolded for you? My intuition is that you had to test it with this uh, company. And how did that go? With uh, Lisa's company? Yeah. Yeah, that went really well. So that was, I was kind of building it as I went. So it wasn't super clean, but it was productive, I think. And then I had a group of fit for service people come through and that was massive because they have a level of awareness and openness to meet each other in that space because it is, there is a group component to it where we have sharing circles and we support one another through our own individual growth as we Mm share the burdens of being human, but also celebrating the joys, right? And that's the importance of community. Um, And then I ran another cohort through it, and then I built 2.0. So now I have launched 2.0, and I'm waiting for the right people to come looking for it. And I also offer it as a one-on-one program that can be equally valuable with a little more time to drop in with me personally and we could really break down some of the false beliefs that the person may have. What part did you find was the, because what I find in my work is um, there's so much shit that I share, yet there seems to be one or two things that like people like that, that's all that they remember and that's all that they want to talk about. And it was clearly the thing that was the most impactful. And for my journaling course, Um, And this is also kind of a technical thing, but what's interesting is the things that tend to be what 
the people remember the most and also find the most impactful also tend to be correlated with what's in the first week. And that is an interesting thing about human nature and human motivation. But um, if I assume that it's not simply because it was placed at the beginning, but that it is the thing that people found the most value from, which I'm actually not convinced that that's actually <laughs> what it is, is um, introducing people to internal family systems and then giving them any type of technique that will allow them to begin to talk to their different parts. That's what I have found in my journaling course. Um, in putting people through your model, what is the thing that you have found? I guess first, is there one thing that specifically seems to be above the others in terms of their beneficial impact on the people who go through it? And if so, what has it been? I think internal family systems is huge and in your program, the Dharma Journal, is that right? You go ahead. So the internal family systems is the journaling course, which is kind of like journaling 101. And then the Dharma Journal is a little bit more advanced. Okay, cool. So uh, Eric goes through greater depths of breaking this down with the prompts for that introspection, specifically around that model. So that's worth checking out. And then with mine in internal family systems, it's more of an overview. And I actually couple it with the core wounds model by Lise Verbeau mm. because there's a lot of crossover there. 100%. And so I think what people get the most out of is that is the awareness that they do have trauma that governs unconscious behavior. Yep. Right. And like Jung says, until the unconscious is made conscious, it will rule your life and you will call it fate. Gazi's smiling ear to ear. And so, you know, people who have had capital T trauma, the big acute horrific things that all too many of us go through, that's obvious. But we all have subtle uh, developmental trauma that might be less obvious. And yeah. essentially, this is any time that we didn't feel love or accepted to be ourselves. We have changed our behavior in order to receive that love and acceptance. So yep. suddenly, we're this grown person, grown man or woman who hasn't gone through an initiatory process, who still has all these antiquated models of who we think we are and these stories that dictate how we navigate the world that really isn't in the highest alignment of our soul. Man, there's a bunch of questions that came up that I know uh, we cannot fit into the time that we have because I, I could feel that I want to get into uh, a discussion of what you think soul is. But um, I think, you know what? Fuck it. That's what's coming up. Cool. That's my true Let's felt sense. Um, this is something that, uh, this is a word that, 10 people can use and 10 people will have a different understanding. And yet also I use this word to represent to myself ideas that when I use this word, it feels like it makes me manifest a better life. And so it clearly has been useful for me. And yet almost every smart person that I've ever read who uses the word soul, uh, when they define it in whatever their map is, they use it differently. I haven't basically found a single one that actually uses the term soul uh, the same way. And so I guess I'll share mine and then just uh, would love to hear what um, yours is and then we can just see what happens. But the best metaphor that I have found is that um, whatever the energy in a seed 
that's that is seeking to bring it to its full blossomed form. You could call that a knowing or an intelligence or whatever. Whatever that force is, I would say that humans are born in the same way as seeds come into the world. And that there is a form that knows, there is an energy that knows what the fully blossom formed of that individual is. And it seeks to, in the same way as the energy of the seed, to transmute everything around it in order to aid that growth. And it's not always successful, but it's relentless. And it will do whatever it fucking can to make that fully formed blossom manifest. Um, I think that that's the soul, or that's how I use the word of the soul. And it's interchangeable with Damon, but I find that uh, just for the sake of most conversations, I say soul, but I actually always mean Damon. And so that's what I think it is. And then like one of the core curiosities of my life is honing um, what is the phenomenological experience, like the felt experience of interacting with that force as a conscious being. And so, you know, I think dreams are one of the ways that soul will try to speak to you. Synchronicities, what you're attracted to, what you are repulsed by, and then learning all the different ways of interpreting those whispers of soul because it seems to not lend itself into or easily to the monkey story making thing. So that's kind of what I see soul as. And then I'm my like one of my life practices is constantly honing how do you receive and then translate. I love that definition of, of soul and I, I agree and I might use some different languaging and a slightly different model for it to make sense to me. And so for me the soul is the the infinite, ineffable energy that is truly us, that always has been and always will be until everything gets sucked back to that unicity point and maybe it expands again, right? So if we are all part of that unicity, then we were, we were pushed out from that as a particular ego consciousness Right. So there is kind of an ego component of individuality for the soul that maintains its awareness of identity before and after this particular iteration, which is my human experience as Kyle. And I believe that my soul continues to come back into this human form, who knows how many times, um, to continue to expand and grow and evolve. Right. Mm. So there is a karmic component to this where I will revisit things that I have visited in other lives that I haven't been able to meet with peace and love. And that's kind of like the ultimate um, accomplishment is to meet everything with peace and love. And now in this individual iteration of myself, there's an intermediary, which is my higher self, which is my guide to my highest potential in this particular iteration. And that might be synonymous with the daemon, who is kind of like the more personal guide. And then there's this notion of like different levels of soul that exist in different planes that might choose to communicate with us. But I think the, 
what is important is that for me is that there's something before and after mm. Kyle. And so now we're talking about the infinite game. And if I could believe in the infinite game, then the finite game, which is this particular life, doesn't seem so scary. And the things that cause me suffering, maybe I can move through them quicker because I know that there's something bigger and more beautiful than I can possibly comprehend. That's really interesting. And what I can feel I don't share is, um, or that my version of it feels meaningfully different and just worth articulating just for me and for you and just to see where that goes. And it's a tragedy that we have a time constraint on this podcast because this is getting fucking good. But (laughs) it's that I currently don't have a model of um, anything that feels like anything within my personality that would have any type of distinguishing feature that would feel like Eric will continue after my life or existed before my life. But the infinite game that I see is again, if you imagine the metaphor of like a master plant tree and that every new like bulb that has the potential to become a branch that then has sub branches and sub branches, every bulb, and this is an impossible image to actually imagine, but just to stick with the metaphor, um, is a life, is a human life. And that there is some energy that's shared by the entire spiraling thing that you could call conscious matter finding higher orders of, or higher complex order. You could call it, you know, like the tree of evolution, whatever. That there is a, con- a continuing thread through all the different things and that under certain under certain states of altered consciousness one of the bulbs can have a memory or have an experience of something that has transpired at some point along the tree and the metaphor that i'm using is constrained by our intuitions about time but that there might also be branches that have already branched out ahead of the bulb and that with certain altered states of consciousness, that bulb can have an experience of those branches that are quote unquote in the future. Um, But the kind of pseudo religious idea that there's any part of this personality that continues on um, isn't something that feels like it's landed for me, but it does feel like I'm embedded in an infinite game that um, is close to what I feel you're sharing. And I don't, I really love that visual of uh, the tree because I could see it and it landed well with me. And I don't necessarily ascribe to the idea that any identity of Kyle will continue beyond this life, but the lessons and the energy that I experience here will. And so as all these different nodes and branches of this tree are having potential simultaneous experience to try to get to whatever the end game of the intention of being here is, and maybe that's like where we level up to the next layer of 
consciousness or, or experience or whatever it may be, maybe we don't come back into this dense form as a human in this material world, which, you know, could be beautiful, but it's also terrifying to think that we don't get to come down into this sacred sensual experience where we get to love and fight and kiss and feel pain and feel joy and dance and, and all the, the wonderful things. Who knows what else is out there? But I think there is like this underlying mysticism that these type of thought experiments lead us to in the most accessible point to that something greater, that like consciousness, that ineffable that we don't actually know, but it connects us all is in fact the earth. Like if, as we bring this full circle, the place where we could get to common ground or maybe, maybe we're not fighting each other anymore. Maybe we're taking the time to listen and to connect is the fact that the earth is our home. The earth, you know, in my mind is a God. Everything we are, everything we consume, everything we have is of the earth. And so maybe that becomes the unified agreement that helps us get beyond our ego identity and to create new systems that are more sustainable and equitable for everybody. I think you deserve the mic drop. I think that that's absolutely the way to land this. And I couldn't agree more. And it feels like one of the deep calls for the rest of my life is to um, drink as much as my ego can handle the elixir of nature Mm. um, and then be transformed by it. And I can feel that I'm just beginning that descent into soul that ultimately the chemical soup that's being put into the alchemical urn that's dissolving my soul is uh, bowing to nature. And I'm just beginning. I love that. And I'm happy to join you in that process. And I think I would be remiss to not mention, if it wasn't already implied, that nature is a soul itself and there is a place where we can meet it at that depth and see what we can learn. Thank you so much for what you do, brother. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing the story of what you've been going through and the fact that you have said yes to this. And I'd love to give you an opportunity to share with people listening. uh, Where can they go to find out more about you? Uh, If you want to share any of the other resources about what you've been doing that you haven't already shared. And uh, for the people who are curious, how can they explore Soul Path? You could find me and Soul Path at connectionintegration.com. You could find me on Instagram at Kyle underscore Dow. And I'm happy to open up any of these conversations that we've touched on today at a deeper level and a more personal level. And also happy to support with any type of introspection around ceremony. And I also encourage you to go check out at Fairy Creek Blockade. It might be the Fairy Creek Blockade. You'll find it. And also at rainforest flying squad and just tune into what's actually going there and see what resonates and if you could support in any way whether that's in person if you're in canada or by making donations on their pages or just sharing and spreading awareness that would be deeply appreciated by me and many many other people beautiful brother thank you thank you so much